I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Is Rotten Tomatoes Certified Rotten Edition? It's Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. On today's show, the alt-comedian Chris Fleming has a full-on stand-up special on Peacock. If you're familiar with Fleming's work, you know how unlikely that uh, might be. He disrupts and inhabits the form. We will discuss... And then the movie Ostrakhan is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's a small contemplative film about the nightmarish existence of a boy in a quietly dysfunctional foster family. And finally, Rotten Tomatoes. You'd think you couldn't game it, but oh, you'd be really, really wrong. Uh, Joining us today is Kat Chow, writer and journalist and author of the memoir Seeing Ghosts. Kat, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here. Yeah, what an honor and what a pleasure. It's, I'm so psyched to talk about uh, all three of these with you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana, how's it going? Hey, hey, pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. I'm good. Um, shall we make a show? Let's make a show. <laughs> Let's please do that. Chris Fleming, if you don't know him, I think you need a visual as much as anything, as much as a backstory. He appears to me to be very tall. He's thin and bendy, 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 and a little sort of toneless, both in skin and muscle. Kind of a funhouse mirror version of Weird Al with similar hair uh, and a kind of, as he himself portrays it, an unengratiating voice. I mean, he makes a huge deal about how unlikely it is that he's standing on the stage while you're in the audience watching him. His comedy is built out of it. Uh, He's been called a niche comedian, a niche comedian, but what niche exactly is? He puts it, his comedy is for theater people who don't get cast. His new special is called Hell, and it's on Peacock. In the clip, we're going to hear Chris talking about his Irish Catholic heritage. Let's, uh, let's listen. In Irish Catholic culture, the one instance of therapy that we have in media is in the film Goodwill Hunting. Matt Damon goes to four botched therapy sessions. And on the final therapy session, he unlocks this insane trauma. And they're like, okay, you're free to go back out. Anyway. Very similarly, I was visiting my parents. And I was talking to my mom. And I was like, mom, I just want to let you know, like, I've been going through like a lot of anxiety and depression recently. You might not recognize my behavior. It may seem strange. I'm kind of struggling with this. I just want to let you know that while I'm here, that we're on the same page about it. And I go upstairs. And 15 minutes later, she called up and goes, Chris, are you feeling better? All right, Kat, let's start with you. I can't say I knew much about uh, Chris Fleming before watching this. And um, this is one of those segments where I think I need people to tell me what I think. I'm still processing (laughs) it. Um, Did you know his work? And what do you make of this uh, turn in his career? You know, I actually did not know his work before. And I'm so glad that we played this clip because it was going to be something that I would have brought up, just the physicality in that. So one thing that I noticed immediately and was drawn to about Chris's stand-up in particular is the way he can contort his face and just the bodily nature of his comedy is really great. But I wasn't familiar with, you know, his sort of YouTube riffs or just the way he has become viral on the internet. So this was a completely new format for me. And uh, I found it, for the most part, really engaging. 
Dana, what about you? Did you know Fleming? And this just seems like a kind of wild curveball. Wonderful, I guess, if you're into it. But what'd you make of this? Yes, I did know Chris Fleming. And in fact, I think I was the person who pushed to do this when I saw that that he had a special, a full hour stand-up special on Peacock, which is not the kind of format, if you're familiar with his work, that you would really expect him to appear in. Because, I mean, as you said, he is a, a kind of a, a viral alt guy, or at least that's how I had known him. Basically, I knew Chris Fleming's work because of little YouTube clips that popped up throughout the pandemic, which I think is when he started to, you know, people started being stuck at home to get into weird stuff. And among the weird stuff were these these little sort of mini bits and songs and things like that that Fleming would post on YouTube. Come on. I was wary of making stuff during this time. Getting creative during the pandemic seems like how the PT Cruiser got made. The joke that we heard, the goodwill hunting joke, that's a good moment. It lands really well as a as a sound clip, but it's actually somewhat atypical of the show in that it's a normal joke with a, a setup and a punchline and it's sort of an autobiographical story. And my favorite parts of his comedy and of this special are the moments that, that take off really far from that and that really wouldn't work as audio clips because as Kat says, they're they're completely physical in a in a bizarre way. So I mean, they're just they're moments that you kind of have to see in order to to get them. But this special made me laugh so hard. I mean, it, it has some weak spots, which we can get to. But every moment that he is just on stage engaging the audience with physical comedy, I was on the floor. And the moment I'm thinking of in particular, there's a moment early on where he does a kind of physical impression of a bird in a bird bath that's resentful because the bird bath doesn't have any water in it. <laughs> and God forbid you don't fill your bird bath up. They land in it and they do this really perfect formative look around like mm, mm, mm. I was promised moisture of some kind and but I there's and he's just kind of tangled up in knots on the floor and staring at the audience in this resentful way. And the great thing about that moment is it's so not relatable. Like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> the resentful bird in the birdbath that's passive-aggressively, you know, staring at whoever didn't, didn't provide water for it. But it's precisely because it's not a relatable moment, but it's just something bizarre that occurred to Chris Fleming that he must now act out with his body on stage. It just has this real spontaneity and freshness. And there's just a super goofiness. I was sort of just so yeah. grateful to be watching a comedy special that wasn't I mean not to sound you know ungrateful that we're in a in a moment when comedy is trying to do more than just be funny but it was just so great to be able to laugh at an hour, hour long comedy special and not have it be about you know cancellation or climate change or something horrible and depressing and looming just to have it be something so goofy and expressive especially when he sings which is primarily what I think I had known Fleming for you know in his little viral Twitter videos and things like that. It's just these seemingly made up on the spur of the moment songs. And I think you'll probably both agree that one of the comedic high points of this hour long special is the song about raspberries versus gerbils. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you have to watch it. the same. Right, exactly. That you can spend four ninety nine on a box of Driscoll's raspberries or on a gerbil. And that when he discovered this as a child in search of an alternate pet, because his mother was allergic to dogs, he went into this sort of existential quandary about whether to get Driscoll's or a gerbil and it just becomes this song which I now can't get out of my head I could just walk down the street singing Driscoll's or a gerbil all day long should I get a Driscoll's or a gerbil should I get a Driscoll's or a gerbil I got 
It's funny, I guess one of the reasons I'm still puzzling out my reaction is it feels almost as though, and maybe I'm wrong, that familiarity with his persona and his niche, particular, you know, internet viral niche as an alt comedian, I mean, your sense of him as alt maybe sets up the joke of this guy, of all people, having a somewhat traditional cable TV, one-hour stand-up-based comedy special, which he seems to find very funny. But as someone who didn't really know him, he didn't make me feel that it was very funny because the running gag throughout is sort of, can you believe Like, can you believe I'm doing this? And then exploding many of the expectations ar- around it. Um, and the general spirit of that didn't catch me. So it's no coincidence that both the Irish Catholic bit and, um, and the birdbath bit, to me, were the funniest in a way and landed best long stretches at a time i couldn't really find myself laughing and the funny thing also is that okay so here is a comedian as you say dana who's not doing you know climate extinction or cancellation but at the same time i felt like something was missing in some sense that there's some like it's what i both love and hate about stand up that there's some elemental darkness to the people who perform it because it is the ultimate showbiz high wire act you either kill or die in the lingo on stage and so it has a kind of you know male or female or other right it has a kind of a, like aggression to it in a weird way the tension between the comedian and the audience the the tension produced by the comedian digging into some place dark about their own personality that can only be vindicated by getting up in front of a brick wall with a microphone and doing that high wire act in front of the public. It's like that kind of aggro dark thing that to me is stand-up comedy at its best is missing here because of the goofiness in some sense. And, you know, correspondingly, like the least funny parts of it to me were the sketches. I just thought they were labored a little bit forced somewhat they were both weird and obvious which is a terrible combination um and cat i'm really curious as someone who wasn't like me familiar with his work i think that there's always an interesting line between someone who's an unlikely looking and seeming performer and someone who maybe doesn't really belong on stage yeah. and i i I don't I don't want to go hard here on this argument or too hard on it, but maybe I want you on my behalf to do it. Like Okay, yeah. Like, no, this is actually good. I'm really glad that you brought up the high wire act because um as someone who had never seen his skits or his songs before, I actually found them, you know, maybe a little too much in this sense for me. And I was trying to unpack why that was. And I think I landed on it was the pacing of it all. Mm-hmm. There were some skits that he returned to over and over and over again that were a meta commentary about, as you were saying, how strange it is that he's doing an hour long special. And so in one of the skits that he keeps bringing back is there is this network exec who's talking to him named Fat Cat. And I think he must return to this skit two or three times. And it's about the type of, uh, you know, comedy special he has to do and this uh, new day of the week that he has to peddle and kind of be this brand ambassador for. Tillip is an exciting new day of the week. We've already rolled out Tillip in Texas and Italy. Texas loves it. It was sort of funny for the first minute or so, but I think my problem with um, this 
entire special is that he lingered too long on certain jokes and he lacked that spontaneity that made him so funny. I actually didn't have a problem with the goofiness. I think that the goofiness is what it what made it really delightful. It was almost the the mashup of it all and how staged the skits were. Um, I felt like I was being jerked around way too much to really get into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Dana, yeah. I'm curious if you also felt this as someone who, you know, liked his songs or liked his skits. Oh, yeah, that's the note I would have given. I think I said earlier there were some weak spots. I mean, if I were, you know, a Fat Cat Network exec myself giving notes on this and it were a draft, I would say lose all the sketches. And I think that those were probably put in there because, and I think Chris Fleming has said this in some interviews, that there's kind of a common wisdom that an hour of stand-up is too much if you don't cut away to some kind of pre-recorded sketches. But both that sketch with the fat cat and then an even worse one involving these kind of like grotesque puppets were just, I agree, they were not funny at all and they didn't work and they should have been lost completely and uh, and supplemented with more stage time, in my opinion. I also think that his crowd work was not... Great. I think that's something that maybe in the room at the time landed better than it would on film. And it's really hard to do that. I'm always really impressed when there's a comedian that can spontaneously interact with a member of the public and make it into a part of the routine. And that doesn't totally fly when he does that either. But that, to me, all goes back toward just my initial point, which is that the moments that are most magical are the moments that are the freest and the most silly, which is just, you know, Chris Fleming on stage exploring his own strange mind world and interpreting it with his body. So yeah, it's not, it doesn't feel completely polished. This definitely feels like somebody's first hour long special that doesn't have the kinks worked out. And, but it made me want to see more Chris Fleming for sure. Could you see him doing a more traditional hour long standup where he doesn't cut to, you know, sketches or songs? Is that his vibe at all? Yeah, I mean, to me, he's, I guess, because I got to know him, first of all, as a viral kind of Twitter phenomenon, he's a comedian of bits, you know, he's not necessarily somebody who's going to make, he said this himself, I think, talking about the special that he doesn't really have themes, you know, there's plenty of comedians that will say, you know, this entire show is about, you know, my loss of my mother, or, you know, it's, it was inspired by, you know, getting married or something that it, they'll sort of have a theme or an autobiographical moment that ties all of their jokes together. He doesn't really try to do that. And I'm not sure he's the most cut out for an hour long special. But he's so unusual as a comedian that I was willing to overlook the lumps and bumps in this special in order to get those moments of of freedom, which almost all again, have to do with dance steps, which with ways of moving across the stage, you know, with things that, that couldn't really be recaptured and retelling them as jokes or playing the clip. Yeah, Dana, I was thinking about that. And I'm really glad you said that. Because one thing that really, really got to me is, I don't know if Chris Fleming really finished many of his thoughts where he would kind of be getting into a joke, ramping up to it in the more stand-up-y bits. So for example, about his sister and um, his sister's cat. And he wouldn't really complete it where he would interrupt himself, throw to something else, maybe start a song or start a different riff or start interacting with the audience, and then maybe return to the original bit that he had begun. And for me, I couldn't follow it. And it just became a little bit confusing. I found parts of it funny, but I think he really should have just leaned into it and tightened that up a lot. All right. The special is called Hell. It's from the comedian Chris Fleming. It's on Peacock. Check it out. And uh, we'd love to know what you think. So shoot us an email. All right. Moving on. All right. This is the moment in our podcast where we typically discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? 
Stephen, we have just one item of business this week. That's to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about the U.S. Open tennis tournament and specifically the tournament and heat. This year, in obviously many ways, going beyond tennis has been one of the hottest years and the hottest summers uh, recorded in world history. Obviously, that's affected all aspects of life, among them uh, the tennis tournament. And so we're going to be talking about the ways that heat and protests about climate change have affected this year's U.S. Open. This idea came from our guest host this week, Chow, who's been watching the tournament closely, as has Steve, I believe. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that segment at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and you get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member and More importantly, you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are what helps keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, onward. All right. Well, Astrakhan is the first feature by the director, David Depesville, about a 13-year-old boy, Samuel, who lives with his foster parents, who appear to have taken him in only for the money or significantly for the money uh, that they get from the state for having uh, fostered him. They're very religious. They live in a rural part of France, and they certainly believe in corporal punishment, and they experience him mostly as an encumbrance. His foster mother's brother, meanwhile, I guess his foster uncle, is a mostly silent and apparently very troubled young man who we're led to believe is abusing one of his brothers. This is a universe in which nothing is overtly dramatic or loud, but everything goes wrong for this poor kid. The movie's very quiet. It's in French, so we have no clip. So, Dana, I'll turn to you. Um, It's been pointed out that most of the film, the bulk of the film, maybe 90% of it is obviously influenced by the new wave and neorealist traditions, especially early Truffaut, maybe Bresson, only to suddenly veer near the, the end into symbolism. It's almost like thinking about two separate films. So let's start with the bulk of it. It's a serious gesture towards a older style of very humanist filmmaking that the French have kept alive. What did you make of this movie? Yeah, it's hard to talk about the film without talking about that exact twist you mentioned, Steve, where in the last 15, 10 to 15 minutes of the movie, the tone wildly shifts. I mean, in, in a wildly is sort of the wrong word because it's actually a very controlled and I think very masterfully done shift, but it's a very different tone suddenly emerges from this, what's been almost a a hyper-realist kind of feel to the movie. There's no incidental music throughout the movie until this last 10-15 minute stretch. There's no kind of um, editing that suggests any interpretation or, you know, psychological twist on the events. We really just have this um, fairly neutral, objective view of some pretty horrifying things that are happening to this young boy. He seems to be about 12 or 13. And it's really impossible to talk about without talking about that shift, but just to stick with the tone of the, you know, of that first hour and a half or so. Another reference that occurred to me was the Dardenne brothers, the Belgian brothers who have been making movies for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now that are in this same sort of social realist uh, mode. 
and that usually have to do with people on the fringes of society, you know, experiencing poverty or other forms of, you know, just rigorous difficulties in their lives and facing up to them more or less stoically, as this this boy seems to do. I'm really glad we're talking about this movie. I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. I admire the filmmaking of it tremendously. It doesn't feel like a first feature in the least. I mean, it's a very, um, it's very intentionally and specifically made to, I think, evoke exactly the feelings that it does. But because it's so opaque, because it so rarely um, comes out and sort of states what its thesis is or what it wants us to make of these characters, and then hits us with this ending that's, you know, incredibly lyrical, and suddenly there's this booming, you know, gorgeous operatic music and and this, um, you know, kind of swirling lyrical imagery. And we're seeing things that we saw earlier in the film, but sort of reinterpreted in a symbolic way. I don't want to give anything away about it, but you know, it's not it's not an ending that you would expect and it's one that puts an entirely different punctuation on the film than you would think would be there. So, this is a movie I'm still really sitting with because you also see some people do really really terrible things to this kid and the parents, the foster parents, you know, that he's staying with who are getting money in order to keep him, right? And it's sort of implied or in some some moments stated that it's only for transactional reasons that they took in a foster child in the first place. Uh, they're they're pretty terrible to him in many ways. And yet, I think the film extends some sympathy toward them, especially the foster mother. And uh, and I'm just not sure in the end to what extent we're supposed to feel like, wow, these awful people are putting this adolescent boy in danger and not offering him any love or affection. Or to what extent we're supposed to feel, well, they're all flawed human beings who are trying as best they can. And, you know, I know that the movie doesn't have to decide that for us, and it's ultimately up to the viewer. But... You know, in that way, this movie is very um, European. Not that every single European movie leaves leaves you in, you know, some state of opacity as to what the characters intend. But there just there wouldn't be an American film about a foster kid being mistreated by his parents that left you in such a state of um, of ambiguity as to how to feel about the mm. whole thing. That's a really good point, Tina. Cat, it's your fate to uh, come on our show during a week of. Um, ambivalence ambiguity and agnosticism <laughs> so you, you like again like this is this is quintessentially a movie that you're not supposed to know in any overly clarified way uh how to feel about this movie in some sense but nonetheless i have to ask you well uh, how'd you feel oh my gosh okay so i had no idea really what this movie was about before um starting to stream it and Immediately, I was just hit by this wave of exhaustion. And I kept thinking, this poor kid, when is he going to get a break? I mean, at what point do these series of terrible, unfortunate events, um, what do they lead to? What are they propelling us toward as viewers? And um, I really kept thinking about how this movie was so much about his fight for agency, you know, where there are some tropes that were really kind of expected where his foster parents' brother 
um, sort of has, you know, some energy that is very sexually deviant. And it's, it's scary. It's a physical threat. Um, it's a sexual threat to this young boy. And there's so much that feels a bit on the nose to me about what this young boy is experiencing in relation to sexuality. It just felt as though every single turn where something could go wrong, it did. And maybe that's, again, what Dana was referring to, my lens as this American viewer who is not quite familiar with French films. Um, but as I was watching, I also kept thinking about Peral Segal's essay in The New Yorker about the trauma plot and how these days, in her eyes, there is so much fiction and also film that is turning to that trauma plot, investigating and looking at people's pasts as sources for what they're going through today. And while there weren't, you know, a lot of flashbacks in Astrakhan, I did feel as though at some point it it was becoming a bit gratuitous for me. And I just, I couldn't really engage after a while, um, you know, with the film. So I think my overall takeaway was this is really emotionally exhausting. And maybe that was the point. But for me, it's not something that I think I would have sought out um, and that I probably will process for a while. But um, yeah, maybe not my thing. Yeah, I, I, I fall very much in that camp, too. It's it's a very non-cathartic style that it's filmed in, this sort of dead-eye camera intrusive fly on the wall slightly emotionally dead camera work i mean not it it's non-moralistic and voyeuristic peering into how suffering unfolds often in the smallest and most subtly but awfully accretive ways so that by the end you've had this portrait of misery at a moment of vulnerability in you know every adolescent's life but it's one in this situation fostered uh abuse adjacent if not abused himself which he might be uh beaten by i would say by today's standards you know very badly beaten by these parents um I, it, the, the thing i most admired about it without liking the movie especially is it's non-redemptive and non-therapeutic in some sense you don't the lack of narrative suggests that even the shapeliness of a story gives us a degree of consolation in the face of trauma, which is part of why the trauma plot was such a significant way of putting it. You know, Kat, as you um, indicated in that, in that specific essay, that landed, I think, because, and there is something about therapies, you know, encouraging you and teaching you in some sense to narrate nor narrativize, to use a more pretentious word, your own the suffering in, in, embedded in your own deep past. That's the opposite ethic here in some sense. It's kind of not a, it's very traumatic, but it's not the trauma plot in some sense. And it, it's, it, instead of a catharsis, you get the psychotic break of the last four or five minutes of the movie where you just go into sort of a, a beautiful and lyrical, but also sort of non-linear, so dramatically non-linear and disorienting and, and virtually, sort of a nightmare psychosis of the end, which is both beautiful and horrible. Um, and that sort of completes the non-redemptiveness of the movie. Dana, I have to reiterate what Kat said. I wasn't sure by the end of it where I was left. Maybe that was the point, but at the end, pointlessness is the point. It just feels so self-defeating. I was just depressed, frankly. Yeah, I don't know that pointlessness is the point, but certainly a radical open-endedness <laughs> is the point of uh, yeah, of the end well of this movie. Yeah. And 
I don't know how to say this other than that I felt I was in sure hands. And that is a different feeling mm. from, you know, I just, I'm very familiar with the kind of arty film festival movie that goes nowhere at the end and makes you throw up your hands and just say like, fine, you know, I, I refuse to have an experience because you didn't, you filmmaker did not process this for me. I do feel like David de Pesville was artfully rendering something that he intentionally wanted to, to say and do. And so I, I can't completely put it on the movie if if I walked out of it saying, okay, but what am I supposed to make of it, if that makes any sense? And it certainly made me feel like the name David de Pesfield, the director's name, will make me want to see the next thing he does. We also haven't really mm-hmm. mentioned that, you know, directing young people is not an easy thing to do, especially when they're on screen virtually every second, having really awful things happen to them. And um, de Pesfield's work with the, the young actor, Mirko Giannini is his name, who, who plays... Samuel is is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I think this movie really succeeds at what it is trying to do. And I just I'm not totally sure that I get what that is, or that I have the fortitude to watch the movie again, to figure it out. But all of that said, I would say that if people are interested in a very dark, but quite beautiful, it's shot on 60 millimeter Kodak film and actually looks gorgeous. Um, a first feature from a French director who's worth following. Astrakhan is, is worth watching. I will say one of the more powerful things about the movie's reticence uh, is the brother who is pretty clearly being abused by the uncle, the foster brother of the main boy. Um, That is underplayed to great effect, I think. I mean, there's one moment where the camera just lingers on him as in some ways not the subject of the film, but the one who is principally suffering in some sense. And... um, I thought that moment was quite beautiful and affecting. Anyway, the movie is Astrakhan. You can see it on Amazon Prime. Uh, check it out, and if, if you like, shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. All right, well, you know, as a critic, it's your job to render an independent judgment, uh, to be more considered, I think, than merely thumbs up or thumbs down. Nonetheless, confession, Rotten Tomatoes is a useful tool. It is for us. When we're trying to decide whether to do a movie or a TV show, it gives you a quick snapshot of the particular piece of content's reception. Uh, It turns out we here at the Culture Gap Fest were being played because it was being gamed. Dana, I should say that we're sort of pegging our discussion to a specific and very good piece called The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes by Lane Brown and Vulture. I bet very little of that piece surprised you. What do you make of it? You know, you're actually wrong in one way. There there was one big piece of Lane Brown's reporting, and this is a reported, you know, this isn't just an, Lane Brown's opinion of Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he, does, exactly. he does dig into some chicanery behind the scenes and, you know, the gaming of um, the, the way that, that movie studios will sort of game the rating of their movie before it comes out. Not all of that surprised me because I'm familiar as a critic with the phenomenon of studios doing pre-screenings for certain, you know, for bloggers and fan site types who they know will Mm -hmm. respond positively. I mean, I knew that when you look at the very early rating for a movie on Rotten Tomatoes, you shouldn't trust it, right? Like, if it's really before most critics have been able to see it, then you can be pretty sure that they invited people to see it who they thought would like it and thereby, you know, they sort of tempt people into the theater for the first weekend before the word of mouth gets out that it's actually bad. Um, that, I guess, I was familiar with. But the the cynicism and the extent of the gaming that's going on behind the scenes did sort of surprise me, uh, as did, to some degree, the the sloppiness with which it seems like uh, these, these ratings are decided, right? I mean, 
when I use Rotten Tomatoes as a critic, it isn't really to look at that final score. You know, I might very quickly look at something and say, oh, this is at 12%, so it's probably bad, right? Or it's at 98%, so it's probably pretty good. But in general, it's less the score that matters than the, the aggregation factor, right? That you can, it's an easy, quick way to go and, and find reviews. And if you filter it right, you know, to find the most interesting reviews by the best critics. But the fact that Rotten Tomatoes seems at this point to sort of just be a big, sloppy bucket of responses to a movie, which could come from anywhere from, you know, experienced critics with major outlets to people that have a little blog or a fan site, right? And they're all weighted equally. And uh, another thing which I already did know about the site is that, of course, somebody is quickly reading over all of these worldwide responses to a movie that are com hopefully complex and ambivalent, like our response to the movie Astrakhan just was this week, and turning them into fresh or rotten, right? It's like a pass-fail grade, and it's pretty much, I think, at 60% that it goes from pass to fail or something. And so any ambiguity in your review just gets ironed out, and they just decide, like, did she like it or did she not like it? Um and all of that together adds up to a mathematical rating that means almost nothing, but that has a huge amount of power in terms of, you know, how a movie will do, where it will be shown, where it will, where it will be reviewed, etc. Um, so, yeah, I think I was a little bit surprised that there was some active corruption behind the scenes, like people being paid. You know, there are some studios or, or distributors that will reach out and pay reviewers some small amount in order to review their movie and essentially imply in their email exchange with that reviewer that they only want to see a review if it's good and that otherwise the review should be shunted away to some other site where it won't get counted. You have to read Lane Brown's reporting to, to kind of get the all the details. I'm not really explaining it well, but it did make Rotten Tomatoes seem more sort of ethically dubious than I had thought. I think before I had just sort of thought, well, it's it's sloppy and it's not particularly meaningful, but I hadn't thought of it before as this vector of of you know of evil doing by <laughs> by filmmaking companies and and that makes me feel kind of gross about being one of the quote top critics on the site. A vector of evil doing, I love that. Uh, Kat, you uh, surely have a ongoing relationship with this website. How do you use Rotten Tomatoes, and how much of this uh, reporting was a surprise to you? Yeah, so I use Rotten Tomatoes in the sense of it is an aggregation tool for me where I'll go and I'll use it to just see what critics who are reputable, um, whatever reputable means, um, are, are saying. And reading this reporting, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, is is a Rotten Tomatoes moving in the direction of Goodreads, right? Where you can just become inundated with these campaigns to really um, move a book or a film's publicity, where um, Goodreads is notorious for, you know, when an author is coming out with a book that is considered controversial, people almost bombing the site with negative reviews. And you see this with things like Yelp, too, and even Google reviews. And I where, you know, you look at the reviews, and suddenly there's just this bevy of very, very, very low ratings, because whatever society or the audiences have deemed not acceptable uh, has really hit a nerve and people are reacting to it. I don't know if Rotten Tomatoes is there now, but I am curious if you two think that it could head in that direction. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's the natural tendency of the internet, you know, as we see over and over again. Um, you know, it's what I find so funny and revealing about this um, piece, which is a terrific piece, both of journalism and, and 
subtle opinionating is the sort of demonization or scapegoating of Rotten Tomatoes by prominent filmmakers. Um, you know, Martin Scorsese, Rotten Tomatoes reduces the director to content manufacturer and the viewer to an unadventurous consumer. Are you kidding? For 40 years, the blockbuster model has been streamlined to reduce the director to a content manufacturer and the viewer to an unadventurous consumer. The forces from within Hollywood itself, the Hollywood that Martin Scorsese draws his paycheck from, you know, designed to dumb down the consumer and make them a fan zombie of recycled IP. Um, and then to turn around and blame it on this website just strikes me as utterly insane. Um, what I do think is that if the site were working honestly, it performs a pretty important public service, which is that any individual critic walks this really interesting line between, and Dana, I'm sure you're familiar with it, which have, with, with having a highly distinctive, possibly even idiosyncratic sensibility and voice, right? Like a Dana Stevens review is distinctive to Dana Stevens, as is an Anthony Lane or a Pauline Kael, you know, in the past, or Richard Brody, right? The Richard Brodiness of Richard Brody is unmistakable in everything he writes. At the same time, that's balanced against a kind of judicious and somewhat disinterested judgment. And so a consumer of reviews can both go to you or Brody or Anthony Lane, knowing that they're looking through and relishing the fact that they're looking through a particular individual sensibility toward possibly a judgment, with the judgment being somewhat secondary. And then you can go to Rotten Tomatoes, and there's this exactly that quote-unquote neutral aggregating function that just says, yeah, but also here are 20 or 30 or whatever designated top reviewers, and at the end of the day, it shakes out that 75 or 80% of them. I mean, at that, that, that just seems to me so plainly useful um, that to have it corrupted is terrible. But at the end of the day, Kat, I just find it funny that these filmmakers seem to think that the thing that's vitiated the power of the critic and criticism is the internet when it was Hollywood itself, good old-fashioned studio Hollywood exercising its PR muscle and doing an end around via wide release of uh, both film criticism and uh, word of mouth. Yeah, everything is marketing, it turns out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. Headline. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe what this article not so much exposed as just made me actually quantifiably think about is the fact that that, that number, which ultimately, you know, as, as meaningless it may, as it may be, is the most powerful thing that Rotten Tomatoes has, right? The same way that your, your grade when you're applying to colleges, your high school grade is all they look at, right? And all the subtleties that may have gone into that are, are, are just ironed out. Um, but the fact that every opinion is equally weighted, right? And especially now that Rotten Tomatoes is trying to expand their net even wider. I mean, they've been criticized in the past for the a lack of diversity in the critics that they designate top critics. Um, so they essentially just invited a bunch more people in, which I don't think hugely changed the uh, the racial or gender makeup of, of their overall um, population, but it made the, the, the numbers bigger, right? And so that number that you see, the 75% or whatever that, that some movie earned, 
is is just a wild amalgam of of opinions of critics who you know to to put it as unsnobbishly as I can have a kind of professional orientation right that they mm-hmm. that they have spent their careers honing their critical sensibilities with some sort of large publication and building a readership and you know people that just have a tiny website that are there's some incredibly incredibly poor writing just you know rounded right up there on the main page of every movie that you look at and so exactly what rotten tomatoes is doing to differentiate quote top critics from you know the the goodreads style just simple audience reactions and then you know people in this this space that sort of like i have an opinion and i posted it on the internet on a site that's called you know filmbombsmash.net or whatever um like they're all just getting thrown into the same bucket and i'm sorry if that sounds like you know i want top critics to mean something more we should i guess maybe just get rid of the whole um notion of of giving an average number in the first place but it ends up making me feel a little bit like wow i guess i've spent 17 years honing my craft (laughs) for absolutely nothing because my opinion counts exactly the same as film bomb smash guy hmm I mean, the same way, Steve, that you say, you know, the film industry has bigger problems. Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader, who are complaining about Rotten Tomatoes, could they could widen their site and look at a more useful target. I think, by the same token, film criticism has much bigger problems than Rotten Tomatoes, right? I mean, it really is a, a, a profession that's struggling to hold on to, you know, whatever few dozen people there are left in the country that make their living off writing film criticism. Um, there are ma- many, many bigger problems at play than Rotten Tomatoes. But it was sort of startling to read this article and realize that the way that 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 film criticism filters down to your average movie consumer, which is Rotten Tomatoes and sites like it, is just such a corrupt and such a useless metric as it is. Yeah, no, here, here, and and I mean, it's no consolation to realize that the person behind FilmSmashBomb.com is about to be replaced by a chat GPT or AI of some kind or another. Okay, well, <laughs> a dire declinist note to end the segment. The piece is called The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. It's by Lane Brown. It's very good. It's on Vulture. Check it out. All right, let's move on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Kat, what do you have? Oh, my gosh. So there is this novel coming out at the end of September called Land of Milk and Honey by the writer C. Pan Zhang. And it is just brilliant. So it is kind of like an apocalyptic novel where there's this chef who she's a private chef and it's set in the near future and she's looking for work and she discovers that there's this billionaire who is, you know, seeking a private chef on his mountain enclave. And so she goes there and she starts cooking for the super rich. And this is in a time and a place where um, food resources, agriculture, um, they're really dwindling. And so the novels are really fascinating meditation on uh, what it means to kind of move forward in this world where there is nothing and what excess means and what happens when you become complicit in that type of excess. And um, the writing is just completely exquisite. Pam, she is also the author of the novel How Much of These Hills is Gold, which um, was a finalist for the Booker Prize and um, just really 
solidified Pam in the literary landscape as this writer to watch. But the writing and the tone of Land of Milk and Honey is very different from uh, Pam's first novel in a way that really makes Pam this writer to watch, where this is someone who is capable of so much in terms of language, in terms of plot movement. So Land of Milk and Honey, exquisite novel, just beautiful and says so much about a lot of the things that we're grappling with right now. Mm, that sounds amazing. Um, Dana, what do you have? Wow, I actually have a contemporary novel too. So this is a lot of, of work for listeners. I guess you're going to have to choose which which of the two to read first. And I don't usually recommend whole books, but uh, I just happen to have read uh, just one of the best novels I've read in years. It's the first novel of a young novelist named James Frankie Thomas. Today is the actual official pub date, uh, September 12th, the day that we're recording. And um and I just wanted to draw people's attention to this book, which is unique among coming-of-age novels that I've I've read in recent years. I guess you would call this a queer coming-of-age novel in that it's about two teenagers, teenage girls, who are um, obsessed with homoeroticism and homosexuality. It's not quite clear um, what their relationship is or will become or who they are or what they will become because this book is so complexly structured. So... It's called Idlewild. It's by James Frankie Thomas, and it's a it's a high school novel that's set in right at the turn of the millennium. In fact, nine eleven figures at the beginning of the novel. It sort of sets things going between these two characters, and without giving too much away, it's it's got alternating points of view between the adult versions of these two teenage friends and their teenage selves who are so close that they narrate as a we. <laughs> so the, the three narrators that we're reading are uh, in the past, this this first person plural narrator that's sort of the unit of these two really close, arguably too close friends. And then 15 years later, their adult selves, no longer friends for reasons that we take the entire book to figure out, um, looking back on this very intense period of their their high school experience. So uh, it's being sort of promoted as a queer and trans twist on the prep school novel. Um, it's extremely funny and uh, and just brilliantly constructed and makes me so excited to see where this writer goes next. So again, it's called Idlewild, and it's by James Frankie Thomas. Okay, any guesses what I'm endorsing this week? How could we possibly guess out of the entire <laughs> cultural field of everything in on Earth? I hope it's good. <laughs> Is it going to be a contemporary it, novel as well? Yes, you guessed it, Data. You could guess it exactly. I this is very weird. We've I wouldn't say we rarely, but it's not super common for any one of us to endorse a novel or contemporary novel, but to have all three of us do it. Coincidentally, on the same show, that's weird. All right, the contemporary novel I'm endorsing is called The Guest by Emma Klein. And I it went into the summer, I think, being hyped as like the kind of high-end, lowbrow, pulp, literary read of the summer. And Emma Klein wrote uh, the no her first novel a few years ago was um, The Girls, which is a sort of fictionalized Manson family retelling from the point of view of one of the sort of cultists. Anyway, this one is like, a, it's, I think it's brilliant. It's like, she's a sort of demented Edith Wharton, um, a second Gilded Age uh, Edith Wharton in writing this book. Um, and her protagonist is kind of a demented Lily Bart, who's fighting against the very ominous, you know, specter of her own 
basically homelessness by being a perpetual guest for about a week in the Hamptons. What it, the setup of the whole novel is that she's effectively a very high end. I mean, I don't even know what to call her. I mean, I suppose sex worker, um, but kind of almost like because we're in this second gilded age, almost like an old fashioned courtesan in some sense. And she's disguised herself as an actual real girlfriend or presented herself as a real girlfriend to this uh, Gagosian like art dealer. And then she blows it basically and gets, um, he, he dumps her basically. And it, it's her story sort of moving her way as a sort of outsider trying to make her way back into the culture of the Hamptons. And it's, it has this, it's a really freaking dark book. It's like a, it, it, in the end, it's this beautifully carefully observed um, ethnography of this world of the super rich as we now find them without being, it, it's not, I didn't find it cartoonish in the least. It has to be based, I think, on Klein's own experiences moving through that world as someone, as she's Californian, and as someone for whom it was, for who had clearly entree into it, um, who has a very careful eye, and um, but for whom it's somehow utterly foreign, as someone like an anthropologist would sort of study or understand it. Um, anyway, the novel, I think it's, it's very simply written, but with a scalpel, right? Precise, very cutting. Uh, and I actually think it's a, in its own quiet way, an extraordinary satire. It's called uh, The Guest by Emma Klein. Klein is spelled C-L-I-N-E. Kat, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really, really, really fun talking to you. Really good episode. Thank you. It's been a blast. Dana, as always, really fun. It was a good one. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Kat Chow and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.